Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode number 326, recorded November 9th, 2011. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 130. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist Express. GoToAssist Express by Citrix puts IT professionals in position to do what they do best, access, diagnose, and resolve. Try it free for 30 days at gotoassist.com slash security now. And by Astaro Corporation, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. To schedule a free trial of the ASG in your business, call 877-4-ASTARO or visit them online at astaro.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that uh, protects you online. And here's the man who's doing the protecting, Mr. Steve Gibson of the Gibson Research Corporation. <laughs> that sounds like a big, a big enterprise, like you might have a tower downtown in L.A. I had a large name and a short domain name, grc.com. You know, somebody I called. When I, yeah, you got I it early. We, yeah, when we first got it. Actually, we got ours within a month of Microsoft. Wow. Getting Microsoft.com. So that was what, 1994, 95? It was, it was early. I remember the disappointment that Gibson.com was not available. Uh, and 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 then, but the guy that I had assigned to get us a domain name said, "But how about GRC?" I said, "Oh, I'll take it." <laughs> Let me do a who is on GRC dot com because I think it would say, "Oh yeah, it does." First registered. First registered. It, it must yeah. be ninety. If if it's that was that early, it must be ninety four, ninety five. Um, record created nineteen ninety one. Steve Gibson, <laughs> you ah, were an baby. early mover. There was yeah, no I internet. <laughs> I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it. But no kidding. I had one. 19. So, I mean, the, the, the World Wide Web, which, of course, this dot-com address was useful for, was created in 1989. And its first demo was like 1990. So you were literally, you were right at the beginning there. Well, Man. and we primarily used it for email. That It was our email gateway. We used some funky, we were using CC Mail. Yeah. Was the the client yeah. and some funky gateway that we dialed up to, which which is like a store and forward thing in San Jose wow. or something, and wow. it's like weird, but yep, I was there. Got grc.com. It's funny too because sometimes people send me email. Hi, would you be interested in selling your yeah. domain name? Oh, yeah, because we like it. Oh and yeah. it's like it's like uh no. Well, we were talking about this on the radio show uh, over the weekend because um, somebody called up and said I have a three letter domain name. Hmm. And uh, I'm wondering if I, you know, how would I, how would I go about selling it? And I said, well, it's probably worth quite a bit because I don't think that er there are any more three-letter combinations available. Even, no. uh, I, I mean, maybe there are, but mostly there. I would guess they're all owned by somebody who perhaps will sell them. But um, and uh, GRC is one of them. But I think GRC is of a little less value than SEX or <laughs> something like that. You know. Yeah. Speaking of which, the triple X 
uh, top level domain is is moving forward. There's some sort of a you now can if you're involved in the XXX rated industry, you can petition with um, IS or not ISPs with, with with registrars uh, using your trademark rights to get the, the this the second level domain under the dot xxx domain and um and begin to move that and oh and if there are uh, is there if there's competition for the same one then there will be an auction to decide who gets it so they're they're trying to do this thing right and someone's going to make a lot of money i imagine we uh, when we had this conversation um i was referred by somebody in the chat room uh, to domain name journal dnjournal.com where they list the year to date top selling domain name prices. Oh. The uh, number 1 was sold in uh, July of this year was social.com. When you want to hazard a guess as to what social.com wow. was worth. Wow. 2.6 million dollars. Domain name.com 1 million dollars. Uh but domain name.com <laughs> I think I don't know if they're really worth that. Gay.triplex half a million dollars. Look.com $400,000. And then numbers are popular. 11.com was a more than half a million dollars. 33.com $358,000. Um so suv.com that's one of the three letter domain names that's worth something. See GRC yeah. I don't know who that would be worth. Yeah. It's worth more to you than anybody probably else. But SUV sold for two hundred ten thousand dollars. Wow! I know it's it's kind of a hot market right now. Yeah, and wow. uh, there you go. Okay, enough of that. We have to, have we <laughs> we have important things to talk about. Thanks to Steve, we've got uh, security news. We've got security updates, and this is a Q and A episode, so we've got to- yeah, and we have a, a bunch of news uh, enough that I'm not going to go in super detail on any of it. Just sort of hit the high points so people know what's going on. We did have us. We are past a second Tuesday of the month with two very important Microsoft related problems. Um, a a bad problem that's been discovered. A zero day kernel exploit, which is Ooh. one of the ways the Dooku worm is propagating. Ooh. I tweeted about a, a fix-it patch that we'll be talking about. And also, there's a, a new remote code execution vulnerability using UDP packets. So, uh, and a bunch of other information and a Q&A. So, lots of good stuff. Let's get to it. Before we do, though, can I mention briefly our great friends at Citrix, the makers of GoToAssist Express. I know a lot of people who watch this show are IT professionals or they do software support, um, maybe even just for family and friends, you know, because if you listen to this show, you're clearly a geek, like a high-level geek. So I want to tell you a little bit about GoToAssist, which is, I believe, the most important tool in your geek toolbox if you do support. It puts you in the position to do what you really do best, which is get in there, access the, uh, the, the machine that needs help, Diagnose the issue and and resolve it in, the, in maximum speed. And go to Assist Express uh, makes that possible because you're in the computer. It's also really straightforward. It's remote access, okay? But it's really straightforward in terms of uh, your 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 support e. The last thing you need to do is is complex make more, you know make this situation more complex by saying okay well I want to fix the problem but you need to have a support tool here's how you start up the you know whatever it is RDP or whatever this is simple you send them a link or you could be in chat this is how I do it with uh, my mom and uh, I give her the link 
the link is provided to you by your GoToAssist install. They click that link. There is a Java, you know, download that happens very quickly, by the way, 30 seconds in most cases. I mean, it's very, very quick. You have to say allow, of course. They have to give permission. And that's it. And now you're in. They can see you working on the machine. You can chat with them. You have a lot of nice features. The ability to uh, do eight sessions at once, for instance, which I think for a pro is really critical to being efficient because you start the scan or you start the install or you have something going on and you can move to another machine. Boom, 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 boom. You can get an assay of what exact operating system is running, what security software, what background software. That, of course, is very helpful. And I love unattended support. If, you know, if you're waiting around for the client to show up, that's just time wasted. You can fix the problem without being in, there in person and without even without them being there in person, which I think is fantastic. It's free for 30 days, and that's, that's the best deal of all. Just give it a try. 30 days free at gotoassist.com slash security now. Windows or Mac, you can support a Mac from a PC, a PC from a Mac. It's completely uh, cross-platform. I just think this is great. Uh, we, you know, we know these guys well. In fact, Citrix was in the other day to show us some new features coming next year, which you will love, Steve. I'll sh- we, I can't talk about it till next year. But the beauty of this is, if you're a GoTo Assist uh, Express subscriber, you get it automatically. Your clients get it automatically um, because it's always up to date. It's it's the tool you don't have to support to get support done right. GoToAssist.com. Slash security now, and we really appreciate their support of security now. Our two sponsors on the show today, GoToAssist and um, uh, Citrix and Astaro, are, um, the, are our longtime sponsors. They've been on this show for, I think, four years. Long time. And that makes a big difference to, uh, to us to make this show uh, viable, so to speak. I mean, I, we, we would do this anyway, Steve, because I like working with you, and I think the information is important. But it's nice that we can pay for it. <laughs> yeah, you probably couldn't have as many toys as you have. <laughs> you neither. <laughs> Mr. Three PDPs over his shoulder. <laughs> That's true. Those do, do they don't do anything but blink, do they? Do you ever do anything with them? They're real. I mean, they're actual. Oh, I understand PDP. that. But yeah. but you don't actually ever fire them up. No, you can't really do anything. <laughs> uh, this is what you know what this is why we are in this profession. Because <laughs> we love the toys, right? Yeah, exactly. And if you have the toys, you also have to secure the toys, and that's what this show is all about. Let's start with our security. Well, keep and, your toys. And, yes. Yeah, keep your toys working and keep the bad guys out of your... You know, I should mention, we had a uh, another exploit on our website this weekend. Uh, it's actually in my notes, was to ask you if something had crawled into uh, your servers again. Do you mind moving that up, and I'll explain it, and then we can get on with the, the do. updates and yeah, everything? Yeah, do. do. Um, so... Anytime you put new code in, and we're running a Drupal uh, install on twit.tv, um, it's, I think, really important to make sure that when you put that new code in, and Drupal it mostly works through modules, so we added, I think we added a um, RSS module, and it had an exploit on it. And I don't know, uh, and we've, we're working now very closely with our, uh, our sysadmins, who are great, Mike Taylor, Bear, and uh, Chris Dieterle, and with ImageX Media, who does the the web design, and ImageX put something new in, and it was immediately exploited, which just shows you that there are people hammering on our system all the time, mm. all the time. And, I mean, literally, within minutes of it being implemented, um, they used it to uh, embed a JavaScript exploit that, it, it's the same Java, I believe, I'm not, but my sense is it's the same Java, old Java exploit that they were trying to put on people's systems. 
So you weren't vulnerable if you've been listening to this show and you've been updating Java. You'd have to have a very old version of Java on your system for this to even be a risk to you. But the, what I really like is within, I don't know, an hour of this exploit being put on our system, Internet Explorer and Chrome both started warning people. Mm. Uh, Google is so good about, well, first of all, they keep us pretty indexed, I imagine. And so there's crawlers always looking at our stuff. If I look at my um, logs, I, the, the Google crawler is always in there. Yep. I mean, just constantly crawling us. And I'm sure that's true of any, any large site. Um, so they immediately flagged it because they see the, um, the, the, the malicious code. So I don't think anybody got bit. I hope nobody got bit. Uh, and we, of course, got, as soon as that malicious code warning comes up, I get flooded with email. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Uh, I mean, we don't. I, I, if I didn't respond to you, I apologize because so I got we got a lot of messages. But I do appreciate people letting us know that. And we got well. Our- and from your perspective, it probably gives you a better sense relative to this podcast of just how difficult it is these days to have a complex, multifaceted, interactive, social, you know, I mean, dynamic site that has to be perfect. Mm-hmm. If there's a little That's mistake. Right. That's all it takes. That's exactly right. And, Something uh, will crawl in. Uh, so uh, we fixed it, and we have implemented. You know, I say this every time. This is, I think, the second or third time this has happened. We <laughs> we've implemented, of course, new procedures to try to keep this from happening again. Uh, but it is very difficult because uh, there are exploits. You know, any it's PHP code. I mean, there are exploits everywhere. And uh, it's hard to put something in production that you can say absolutely is bulletproof. I really... and, and even if there are not mistakes made, there are unintended consequences of the interaction of things. I mean, technically, allowing SQL commands right. to be interpreted by the server is not a mistake, it, but it is exploitable if if a bad guy realizes that when the server displays a page, it's going to run through the SQL interpreter so they can post to a forum code that they want executed when, that, when their posting is displayed. I mean, so that it wasn't a bug anywhere. It was just a bad idea. I mean, it was, it, it was something that was convenient as, I mean, just as all get out, super convenient from an implementation standpoint. But oops, it had, it was abusable. There was a way to abuse that. And and it's just so difficult these days as our systems become multiple layered, you know, author, you know, authoring is coming from every different direction. Um, individual authors have different sets of expect, expectations and assumptions, which, you know, if they don't match up and you put these things together, clever people can find a way through. So, I mean, it, it really is a challenge. Boy, I tell you, uh, I, it makes me feel terrible. I mean, I hate to I hate to have that happen. And um it's embarrassing, but I also just, I mean, more than the embarrassment, I just feel bad because I don't want anybody to get bit by visiting our site. Uh, so I'm really actually very grateful that Google and uh, IE flag you so quickly. Yeah. I think that's really good. Yeah. But it is is—it is a big issue. This was not an a, a SQL exploit, I believe. Believe it or not, it was another JavaScript issue, but yep. I'm not sure exactly yep. how it happened. Um, yep, scripting. Our guys know. You know how you know how I feel about scripting, Leo. We don't yeah. have to go any further than that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so there's that story, and again, I apologize. And uh, you'd think we'd know better, but it's so difficult to do. And uh, yeah. I think we've we've you know we've put in new. Uh, I think part of the problem is Imageact, which is a great Drupal company, is not used to working with a site that is like ours under attack twenty four seven. And I think they just they just really didn't realize. 
Well, and I don't know that that it's a responsibility that you the you know you and the and the Twit crew really ought to ought to accept responsibility for. You are going to be using you are you no you know almost no one is writing all the code themselves from scratch. Right. I mean, you know, like me, but <laughs> that's probably it. Right. And and it's just not feasible. You're you, to 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 compete today. You have to be able to take modules from different places and just say, "Oh, this is a Drupal module. We want to add that service. Drop it in." Well, you know, and and we've seen you. It's not practical to to imagine you can audit it because you even can't. even people who know what they're doing read the code and they go, yep. "Oh yeah, that looks fine," yep. until it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. But all you can do is what you have always done, which is is respond immediately and and fix the problem. I mean, that's all anyone really could ask of of anyone, you or any other. So thank you. But I I feel the (laughs) I just I feel bad. It shouldn't it shouldn't happen. And we're going to do our best. So. So. And by the way, it does make me feel better that it happens to everybody, including Microsoft. (laughs) <laughs> Zero oh, yeah. day kernel exploit. Holy cow! Yeah. So in in examining what Dooku was doing, and this is this is this sort of maybe it's related to Stuxnet. We're no one's really sure. There's now question about whether there's actually any common authorship involved. Initially, people said, "Oh, look, it's sort of you know derived from the same source code." It's like, well, maybe not. So, but in analyzing it, they saw it doing something. That is propagating in a way that they had never seen before. And what it turns out was that it was it was using a previously unknown, which is to say zero day Microsoft Windows kernel flaw, which which the authors of this worm obviously knew about. Um, it was it's in the parsing of true type fonts and so it was and and, and somebody when this news broke i saw a a tweet said that that came to me and said okay and why are true type fonts being par- processed and parsed in the kernel it's like yes i know i know it it's it was a decision microsoft made a, a, a while ago for the, in, in the name of performance Back when Windows was still too sluggish and we didn't have chips that were fast enough. And so Microsoft moved GDI, the graphics device interface, into the kernel. The proper architecture, the original architecture, was to make that run outside as a subsystem. And Microsoft could not resist the temptation of moving it down into the kernel. And we've seen a series of problems that have resulted and you know you and i talk about these things sort of from a theoretical standpoint but you know when we're talking about the dooku worm using these uh, this as an example to propagate i mean it's these are machines that are actually being infected by this so this is not you know this is sure it's an inconvenience for those of us who are not infected we got to update windows and patch and so forth but I mean, it's it's really does represent a problem when these things end up being the the entry vector for malicious code into people's machines. Now, this has happened so quickly 
that Microsoft has not been able to respond. They, um, th 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 this has not been fixed in yesterday's, that is to say the second Tuesday of the month's patch. Um, a different bad problem was fixed. This one hasn't been. So I tweeted as soon as Microsoft produced one of their single-click fix-its, I tweeted that to the, I think I have about 26,000 followers now, and, and I saw that it was heavily re re retweeted. This is a way of essentially denying access to one DLL. The DLL is t2embed.dll, and so people could go to either my look at my Twitter feed where it's still right there at the top. So that's twitter.com slash sggrc. And you will see that and a few other things that I've been tweeting recently. So anyone with a, a web browser can do that. You don't have to be a subscriber to Twitter or anything. Just twitter.com slash sggrc. And that contains a link to support.microsoft.com slash KB slash 2639658. And that's the page with the one click fix it. Now, there are some command line uh, options which can be used, but it, they vary depending on what version of operating system and what service pack and everything. So it's just easier to let this little Microsoft one click fix it solution go. And I would suggest, since we don't know whether Microsoft will do an out-of-cycle patch, this is bad enough. I will be surprised if they don't. That is, I, I can't imagine they're going to wait until December's Patch Tuesday for this because this is not good. This is, you know, being actively exploited by a worm, which is is having its way with Windows right now. So I expect we'll see an out-of-cycle patch, but we don't know when. So um, people listening to this podcast can simply follow those links, click a button, and it will basically this shuts down access to a DLL that we don't need. It's there. It offers some features. That it, in, it involves embedding of true type fonts. There's a both a word file exploit and a web-based exploit. So... Microsoft's in their executive summary, they said Microsoft is investigating a vulnerability in a Microsoft Windows component, the Win32K TrueType font parsing engine. An attacker who successfully exploited this vulnerability could run arbitrary code in the kernel. The attacker could then install programs, view, change, or delete data, or create new accounts with full user rights. We are aware of targeted attacks that try to use the reported vulnerability. Overall, we see low customer impact at this time. This vulnerability is related to the Dooku malware. And then in mitigating factors, they said by default, all supported versions of Microsoft Outlook, Microsoft Outlook Express, and Windows Mail open HTML email messages in the restricted sites zone, which disables font download by default. If a user clicks a link in an email message, the user could still be vulnerable to exploitation of this vulnerability through the web-based attack scenario. So Microsoft recognizes this as a problem. I think they'll, they 
they have to be working on getting this thing fixed quickly, but there is a way for us all to protect ourselves in the meantime. What they did fix, I think there were four updates in yesterday's, that is to say November 8th, which is the second Tuesday of the month, uh, Windows patch, and the security community is telling everyone, do not be slow in in updating Windows. There was one very bad problem and surprising. It, it fits in with what we've been talking about with internets and packets and, and, and UDP and TCP and so forth. This was a, this is not being, this is not being um, uh, taken advantage of, exploited in the wild yet. So this was a privately reported vulnerability, which Microsoft says, ooh, crap, let's get this thing fixed right now. <laughs> Did they um, really say that? Ooh. <laughs> I think somewhere, believe Somebody me, probably more than that even. Yeah. Uh, I clean it up for the podcast. Um, <laughs> they said, this security, quoting Microsoft, this security update resolves a privately reported vulnerability in Microsoft Windows. The vulnerability could allow remote code execution if an attacker sends, get this, Leo, a continuous flow of specially crafted UDP packets to a closed port on a target system. Oh. So that's freaky. Yeah. I mean, that's just, you would think... Closed should just bounce off. Exactly. It ought to have no effect whatsoever if a UDP packet hits uh, Windows and apparently the Windows firewall is no protection. Oh, they dear. said Yes. They said the security update addresses the vulnerability by modifying the way that the Windows TCP IP stack keeps track of UDP packets within memory. And again, you'd think, okay. But, okay, so the fact is the packet's going to come into the machine and, you know, affect things. It's going to bounce around. It's going to do something until the system decides that there's nowhere for it to go. That is, you know, there's some processing upstream of that port is being, you know, that port is closed. For example, maybe, you know, certainly there's a list of ports that are open. And so something's got to rifle through that list. So there's got to be list pointers that are being followed and, and so forth. So, so we're able to sort of stand back and say, well, the port's closed. How could it go anywhere? Well, you know, how did it know it was closed? So... Some work was done when that packet came in, and that must be where this problem is. So they said, for more specific information about the vulnerability, see the frequently asked questions subsection for the specific vulnerability entry under the next section. And it didn't say much, but it said um, an attacker could exploit this vulnerability by sending a continuous flow of specially crafted UDP package to a closed port on the target system for workarounds it said block unused UDP ports at the perimeter firewall, oh. meaning meaning you know the like an Astaro, yeah, an Astaro or an Astaro sort box. of thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or well, that answers or, the question because one of our chat people said, "Well, does this affect your router?" But no, it's a Windows exploit. Correct, and it said block unused closed UDP ports at the perimeter fire or blocking UD unused closed UDP ports at the perimeter firewall helps protect systems that are behind that firewall from attempts to exploit this vulnerability. This is so, so bizarre, though. I mean, 
I don't get it. I know. It's uh, not supposed to, you know, if it's a closed port. You've been saying stealth your ports. Is a stealth port, would that be, I guess you can't really stealth in Windows, can you? Um, Windows does some stealthing. I'm okay. a little rusty on what they the stealth versus block. Yeah. But, yeah, the firewall does. But, but you know, it, it is the case that the the port, the, the packet data is going to come into the interface and go into the stack in the kernel and somebody has to decide to drop it. So it, it's something about, I saw something about a, um, a sequence counter or a, st- a sequence count or a state or something. So anyway, Microsoft's not talking about this, but this was fixed in today's or in yesterday's updates. So, so the, 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 in general, so sometimes these are, not very interesting fixes that Microsoft does. They go around, you know, with 29 of them in, in Word or Excel or something. But this is, is, is expected to be exploited before long. And your, your, your router will protect you, um, but your Windows firewall won't. And you don't want this thing to be left open. Oh, and <clears throat> XP is not vulnerable, Leo. <laughs> Just the newer ones. Every other one from Vista on. This was something that they introduced at that point. Remember, we talked a lot about when uh, you were worried when uh, when they rewrote the TCP IP stack from scratch that this kind of thing would sneak in. Yep. And there were uh, early on, we talked about some some long standing old problems that mm-hmm. have been solved that came back yeah. because that's just going to happen. Wow. So <laughs> Adobe. <laughs> Yes, go ahead. <laughs> I like the <laughs> <laughs> formally abandoned yes. flash. Thank God on mobile devices. Yeah, not, oh yeah. By the way, very important that last clause. I interrupted <laughs> on mobile devices. Yes, it's, it's it is a little bit of a shade that Steve Jobs isn't still here with us yeah. to to see his victory because uh, you could argue that. It's the iOS, the absolute refusal of iOS to support it. Um, they're going to they're going to finish out with version eleven point one for Android and BlackBerry Playbook devices, but that's it. And the day before that was announced, they announced a seven percent global workforce cut. They are eliminating seven hundred and fifty jobs. From oh, their dear. global workforce, oh, and this morning the Adobe stock was down at down twelve percent yeah. at at market open. So, oh, um, yeah, um, you know it's tough. There, Adobe said they agree HTML five, which is what Apple has always been saying, is the proper solution for 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 things like just displaying video. If all you want to do is, you know, if you're YouTube, all you want to do is display video. Mm-hmm. You just don't need all of the everything else that Flash is. And, and it's everything else that it is that causes all these problems. Because it is, you know, it's a very powerful interpretive environment, which has been nice and portable and, and multi-platform but, and evolving over time. But as we know, it's very hard to do security right. Yeah. And so... Adobe is just going to give up on it. Wow. For mobile devices. Wow. Yeah. 
Um, Newsbin, we talked about last week, uh, was the site that was had been asked by the MPAA, or well, the, the it was the site that that the MPAA was requiring BT British Telecom to start blocking for their users, and I saw a little blurb that said that. Uh, Newsbin was saying that almost all of their users are already using a workaround that renders whatever it is that BT is doing ineffective. Mm. And I I did a little more research because I was curious. And BT is just using apparently a relatively simple to workaround technology called CleanFeed, which they had already had in place to to block child abuse sites. So essentially BT just added newsbin to their existing block, you know, site block list and said, "Okay, fine, we've complied with the court order." Knowing full well that newsbin users since the fall have had some technology that just avoids this clean feed thing, whatever right, it is. Right. And then on 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 the heels of that Another music industry trade group, BPI, has now asked BT to block access to the Pirate Bay and have threatened legal action if they don't immediately do so. I think it gave them a few weeks to do that. So I'm not sure where this is going to lead. It's going to be interesting to see because, you know, we have this question of is it the ISP's responsibility to block, to arbitrarily be compelled to block access to sites that that industry trade groups would rather not be on the internet. Yeah, I mean this. It, it, we're seeing an evolution here in in thinking about about whose responsibility this is. Very interesting. Yeah, um, many people tweeted the news that on November fourth, LastPass updated to version one point eight zero point zero and added multi-factor support courtesy of the Google Authenticator. Um, the, we talked about, the, about Google releasing a, a free and open source authentication system, which uh, Google supports on Android, iOS, and BlackBerry devices. But there are thir- there's third-party support because it is open source and anybody can support it for Windows Phone, WebOS, and Symbian. So it's got very good across-the-board support. And, of course, we like multi-factor. Multi-factor is good. The more factors you can have for authenticating, as long as it's not too burdensome, the better. So I did want to let anyone who hadn't picked up the news that Google Authenticator was available. And what that means, of course, is when you are telling last when – when you're proving LastPass when, – when you're proving to LastPass that it's you, for example, you, were, you went to a, a browser – that you wanted to use LastPass to help you log in on, and you needed to tell the browser and convince the browser and La- and LastPass itself that this is you, you would have to provide additional authentication beyond just your account name um, and password. You need to use the Google Authenticator, which uses, and we'll talk about this in, in our Q&A a little bit. This comes up again. Um, the technology, the specific technology that they're using, but it's very much like the original time-based football that, that you and I discovered, Leo, the, mm-hmm. the little 
the the PayPal football mm-hmm. with a six-digit code that is varying constantly. Um, and it's, you know, I've got the VeriSign authenticator uh, loaded in my BlackBerry, and it's the same thing. It's six-digit code with a little clock that shows you how much longer that code will, will be valid, and then it changes. So um, anyway, anybody using LastPass can uh, can update to 1.0 or 1.8. I think it does it automatically in, in most cases, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. And um, we've had some more news and trouble over in the certificate authority world. Uh, Mozilla, Microsoft, and Google all together moved to remove a Malaysian intermediate CA from their browsers. So remember, we, we've talked about certificate authorities. The root, the so-called root certificate authorities are the big guys like VeriSign and and Trust and, and DigiCert and so forth. And their certificates are what our browsers trust and and all contain. It's possible for an intermediate certificate authority to to be granted their ability to issue certificates by a root authority. And so, for example, in this case, this Malaysian intermediate CA was found to be issuing bad certificates. Not fraudulent, but they had weak keys and they had some parameters missing. It was like their technology was behind the times or, or it had been misconfigured or maybe something got into their systems and deliberately weakened the certificates that they were producing. We're not really sure what the backstory is, but their certificate was signed by the Texas-based company Entrust. And so because this Malaysian certificate authority was found to be issuing certificates that, that the browsers did not feel was secure enough, um, they've been prevented from doing that. And a, du- a Dutch telecommunications um, certificate authority, KPN, has stopped issuing certificates when they discovered that this, the web servers which they were using as the front end for processing these certificates had been compromised perhaps as long as four years ago. Whoa. Yeah. So it's like, whoops, uh, okay, we're, gonna, we're not going to issue any more until we figure out what's been going on and, uh, and how big a problem this is. If a compromise happens in the forest and there's no one there to observe it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, if it went on for four years and nobody ever noticed, I mean, I don't know what that means. It sounds like it was Yeah, well, it, well, they don't know. They don't know that any bad certs were issued. They just realized that there was malware had been installed in the systems and they and these guys are doing the right thing. This is this is as responsible as you can be. You'd rather not have anything in your server, but if it is, then you say, "Okay, whoops." I mean, and and the only way they the world knows is that they said, "Okay, we're going to stop issuing certs now because we have to figure out what this means," which is all anyone could ask of them. They you know, they've absolutely behaving responsibly. And I did pick up a little security news that Apple has postponed their enforcement of app sandboxing, iOS, iOS app sandboxing. So, you know, touch, phone, and iPad. It was going to go into effect around now, but 
they're moving it back to March 1st and then saying we're not moving it again. Now, the problem is that this is it's a mixed blessing. It is an enhancement to the security of iOS and of all iOS apps at the inevitable cost of features. So developers are not happy and and have not been implementing Apple's sandboxing because it is restricting. It's it's restrictive and restricting some things that they would like to be able to do, um, reaching out of their own file system zone. It's actually, it's worse than you think. Okay. It's not iOS, it's the desktop. They're talking about all apps sold in the Mac App Store. And I understand your confusion because you, you don't use an iPhone. No. <laughs> They're not talking about iOS. That's already implemented. They're talking about in the App Store for desktops. <laughs> so, it's, so it's really kind of a shocker. Um, and it's something I'd actually been worried about for some time because... While you can still and always probably will be able to sell, well, I shouldn't say always, for the for the time being, be able to sell apps outside the App Store. There's so much convenience and value to buying apps in the App Store that I think a lot of users have moved to the App Store. So what Apple's now saying, you know, they've said all along, no demos, no betas. <laughs> what Apple's now saying I'm is if you want to, I'm stunned too. If you want to sell apps in the App Store on the desktop, your apps must be sandboxed. It's the uh, we've talked about this uh, on MacBreak Weekly. I think the iOSification of the desktop. It's where Apple's headed. Ah. Yeah, and so what they would like, and you know, you're a security expert. You, I mean, there's certainly security value to doing this. Oh yeah, as I said, with the inevitable loss of features. But I'm, now I'm stunned. <laughs> Can you like, imagine an application that cannot write to the file system? Holy moly. They, I, th- I truly believe that Apple's intent is to get everybody using d- its desktop computers to essentially be in an iOS-style state. It will be wow. undoubtedly secure. Uh, and I don't, you know, at some point, I, I don't understand how the transition is going to occur. Because, of course, you can still, I can buy an app that can write to the file system and for the time being will continue to. At some point for this to make any sense, Apple's going to have to turn that feature off and say you, just as on iOS, you must buy from the App Store unless you jailbreak it. So maybe they're, okay, so. so <laughs> yeah, now, saying, now you got to think about this, don't you? Whoa. <laughs> Mac, Mac OS ten apps, which I buy from the i. From the App Store, from the Apple App Store, right, will be as sandboxed of as of March. 1st, yeah, will enforce sandbox. Yes. So, so, so for a while, the user will have a choice. They'll be able to say, "Well, um, you know, everything I'm hearing says that the apps that I buy from the Mac App Store are safer. They're secure." They don't be- they're more secure. They're maybe a little inconvenient. Of, you know, whatever. <laughs> but they're more secure. Wow. Now, my wonder, my suspicion is that Apple's apps will not have to be sandboxed. So, what I'm suspecting, but here's what I think will happen. I mean, I don't, and you know, they may back down. On are, this. are these toy apps? I no. mean, these things? No. 
They're not toys. Final Cut Pro Ten oh, is sold in the App Store. Uh, in wow. fact, that's going f- right now. You can still buy a disc, but uh, that's only be- that was they bowed to pressure on that one. Well, you can't have Final Pro, a Final Cut Pro, unable to reach out of its own little. World. Am I wrong? Yeah. But when app, if you if you sandbox, does that not mean that you cannot uh, write to the file system? Isn't that what that well, means? I will know next week. <laughs> I, and I think what's I think what's really happening, and I think app, now with Steve gone, this may change. You know, there are already some changes happening, and I think that this was a Steve. But with Steve gone, uh, some of this is up in the air. But here's what I think they were they they were headed towards. Making essentially making the de- and by the way, Microsoft's kind of doing the same thing with Windows 8, making the desktop essentially an iOS, mm. uh, which is more secure, more controlled. I suspect Apple's apps, just as on the iOS, Apple's apps can do things that other people can't because we trust ourselves. Um, I suspect that what this does is pushes you, and Apple's always wanted this, into Apple apps. Apple would like you to buy only Apple apps for, but they don't have an, they, I mean, they, they. They do. They, they don't even begin to have the the breadth of what today's desktop has. No, of course not. But they have uh, office suites. Yeah, they have the bulk of it. The, when when they create, they start creating iLife, and, and, and it comes with so much. And it comes with it. it. Yeah, yeah. And it's very inexpensive. I don't. You know who knows what this is? It's nuts. Wow. I think what will happen is that. People who want a full operating system will have to migrate somewhere else. I was going to say that. I I, you know, I was going to say that if this continues, then this really changes the terrain where these mainstream, high-volume consumer OSs become closed systems and Linux, for the first time, really starts to look like the, the place where... You know, the hackers. If you and want to, you want to we, do anything, oh, yeah. Uh, the power users live. Now, yeah. Knox Harrington says, well, but wait a minute. Isn't Chrome sandboxed? It is. I mean, tabs within Chrome are sandboxed, but that doesn't mean the app is sandboxed, right? You, the app well, can, and a browser is not trying to be, limit, you know, Final you know. Cut Pro. It's just, it's a it's a viewer into things, basically, with, you know, with, with the ability to send some stuff back to the mothership. But, wow. Ooh. Wow. And I'm looking at my little line I quoted here. <laughs> Developers fear loss of useful features. <laughs> <laughs> On the you desktop. Think? You think? But I wow. you know, they look at they look at the success of the iPad, and the iPad is really the computer for the rest of us. Yeah. And um I think what they what they say is, well, the rest of us want a, a desktop operating system that's Well, those of those someone would like a keyboard also. So <laughs> we're going to give you the we're going to call it the iPad with a keyboard is your Macintosh. So the idea wow. is to minimize the damage the application could cause if it were malware or were compromised by malware. So that Precisely. makes sense. Precisely. The idea being that that within the sandbox, the, the a, m, applications are they're given – I mean, I understand a little bit how it works on, on iOS. You have this – because I looked at – remember, when this was – iOS was beginning to happen, we, we, we talked about it. There's a, a sort of a pseudo-randomly generated directory leaf off of the file system, and all of this is opaque. The application 
doesn't get a file system. It doesn't see a root. It doesn't see a hierarchy. It just sort of sees, here's your spot. You know, good luck with it. Now, the, the question is also... The question is also how Apple implements sandboxing. You know, we're 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 interpreting it in the most draconian, strictest form. Um, and I'm looking at what they do right now in OS X Lion, and they do allow an app, for instance, to write to the hard drive, but they have to go through Apple's dialog box to do so. They can't examine uh, other people's files. In other words, it's almost like um, uh, application-based permissions. Yes, um, I'm looking at something here. It says, to then meet the program's needs, the developer includes a sandbox rule called an entitlement. Right. That allows the program to access the needed resource defined in that entitlement. Right. The entitlements are managed by Apple and thereby allow Apple to centralize how sandboxed programs can access resources in OS X. So I imagine Apple will not make it the most draconian possible sandboxing, at least initially. Right. It says the developer can add as many entitlements as he wishes to give his program as much system access as is necessary. However, the idea is the developer only enables the entitlements that are needed to allow his program to run. So, so that's interesting. Um, what this creates is it's like having a firewall between the API of the OS right. and your application. And the API controls access. Yes. No, well, well nor- normally the API is, you know, the, is, is everything. Right. And so, and so an application can use the OS's API to do anything it wants. But now imagine that we deliberately impose a layer between the application and the operating system's API. And like require a you to use it. And, and, and require you to use it. And now, and it's like ports. In the same way that a firewall, you can open ports through a firewall, you would be able to specify which aspects of the API your application needs. And the idea would be that you would, that would be as minimal a specification as possible to create insulation between your application and the operating system if something should go wrong with your application, if it should get infected or made malicious, anything that got in there into your application would be unable to alter those entitlements, which were defined for the app, and so could not access areas of the OS um, on an ad hoc basis. So that's what we're talking about. Yeah. You know, I think what will happen is Apple understands that people will rebel against this. Um, you know, it's interesting. That I'm, uh, uh, there, there's a good article on this in uh, on Ars Technica who interviews two different uh, developers. Uh, Rich Siegel, who does bare bones software, he does BB Edit, says this is going to be fine. Most of our apps will be okay. We'll just go through the API. But then uh, he, they also talked to Panic, which does a, a really great FTP program called Transmit. And they say, we, uh, this will break. We can't do it. This will break it. So, um, and I think that also what will happen is Apple will interpret this liberally, will we'll provide a liberal API, but there's no guarantee they won't continue to, sh- to shrink capabilities and so mm-hmm. forth. And I, yeah. it, there's also a debate in the security world about whether this will have 
a benefit in terms of security. So it's a very yeah. it's a really interesting debate. It's a shocker to be honest, and it's not getting a lot of coverage. <laughs> I think, uh, and I, I could see your jaw drop when I said, "No, no, this is the <laughs> desktop they're talking about." Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? <clears throat> and, okay. I, and you know, only Apple could do this. You can't see Microsoft doing this. No. No, no. Microsoft is dispositionally completely against the idea of ever removing anything like right. this. I mean, remember, Apple in the past has obsoleted chunks of API. They've said we don't, we're not going to support that anymore. It's like what? You know, All Microsoft ne never does that. Right. Yeah. And I think so, Apple will Apple will ap appeal to uh, a certain kind of consumer, and I will probably recommend it to a certain kind of consumer. Yes. But if you want to yes. hack your system, or you want to play with it, or you want to develop software, well, or, uh, you know. <laughs> and here we've been we've been saying, well, look what's it's happening to, to the Mac. It's beginning to crumble under the pressure from malware. It's like, well, nope. You know, Apple is working to respond. Yeah, and, and they, they will be, be more looking. secure. They must be looking at at the fact that you know they're succeeding with this kind of protection on the i on the iOS platform. So, let's here's our migration strategy. Wow. Anyway, something big just happened, Leo. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. Something else. Oh, what else? We just passed just now, two minutes ago, forty-eight four, minutes into the show. Forty. Uh, Forty-four four, minutes. Four. four Hundred hours of security now. <laughs> it feels like that sometimes. <laughs> Four hundred hours. Wow. Djan from Stockholm, Sweden. He said, "I when I was going through the mailbag, pulling the Q and A together, the subject was four hundred hours of SN." And I thought, "What?" And so he says, "Hi, Stephen Leo. Congratulations on cumulative four hundred hours of security now." According to my calculations, you will finish, you will fill and finish the 400th hour at 44 minutes and 28 seconds wow. of episode number 326. He said, for the record, I excluded episode 185A, the gray-haired Oh, yes. I forgot about episode that one. Yeah. calculation. So... <laughs> I thought that was very cool. Thanks, Dijon. 400 hours. And I got a nice note also in the mailbag from Jeff Leckenby with the subject, caught my eye, not surprisingly, Spinrite does it again. He said, Steve, slightly over two weeks ago, a college professor and co-worker of mine explained that his home computer would no longer boot. With an exam coming up soon, it was extremely important to him that the content of the hard drive be recovered since this is where the exam materials all lived. I took a look at the machine and found that immediately after post, the power on self-test, the screen would say no boot disk was found. Not good. I thought this was a job for Spinrite. I put Spinrite on a CD and rebooted the machine. I selected level two and let it run. That was on October 6th. <clears throat> well... On October 20th, it finished. Okay, 14 days. That's not too bad. <laughs> two days, two it, weeks. It ran for approximately 342 hours. Almost as long there, as this show. <laughs> there was one, exactly. There was one recovered sector, seven unrecovered but repaired. The CD was removed and the computer was rebooted. Amazingly, 
The machine booted all the way into Windows, and the exam materials could all be used again. I was astonished. No, not that it worked. I've used Spinrite before. But because I thought after 14 days that the hard drive was going to have so many bad areas that it would likely not boot, and much would be lost anyway. The drive was in bad shape, but Spinrite recovered it. That was not the case. It's been my experience with Spinrite that it usually takes a couple of hours to work its wonders. But this effort shows that patience pays off. Many thanks to you for producing such a top-notch program. And thank you, Jeff, for sharing that with me and our listeners. We're going to take a break, come back. We've got 11 questions. 10 questions plus the, uh, what do you call it? The what, what is the name you have on this 11th question? The happy there, camper of the week story. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Coming up, the happy, happy camper of the week story. Before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Astaro Corp. Of course, uh, in those 400 hours of security now, Astaro Corporation has been a sponsor since about hour, I don't know, 50 Mm-hmm. Uh, very early on in the first year, and we're so glad to have them. And by the way, I don't know if I mentioned this before. Um, we always, I always loved Astaro and used Astaro stuff. This, but when we set up the uh, networking here, and I, and really a tip of the hat to Russell Tammany, our uh, IT guy, um, I told Russell, you know, Russell, let's do all Astaro. And he, now he had used other systems before, and um, and he said, well, you know, I, I I can't remember what it was. I think it's Cisco or something. He said, I use these, and I said, well, you know what, let's. Or Sonic. Well, maybe it was Sonic Firewall. Yeah. Anyway, uh, he said, let's, I think you're right, actually. He said, I said, he was very game. I said, if you want, you know, I'll pay for your Starro certification and so forth. He said, no, I'd, you know, he's a consulting IT pro, so he works with a lot of companies. He said, no, I'd like to try Astaro. We now have, uh, is it three or four Astaro gateways? We have Astaro access points. We're an all Astaro shop, and I am thrilled. We not only use Astaro for the security aspects of it, of course, that's what it is. It's a security gateway. But also, it does um, uh, some really handy, cute, you know, quality of service, uh, bandwidth shaping, uh, sharing. Yeah, it's fantastic. Failover. That's why we have more than one. Because uh, we have several networks. It's just, it is, it is a great tool. And I think he's come around and said, you know what? You're right. This is great. He's really enjoyed working with it. We love Astaro. If your small or medium business network needs superior protection from spam, from viruses, from hackers, complete VPN capabilities, intrusion protection, content filtering, of course, a state-of-the-art industrial-strength firewall, in an easy-to-use, high-performance appliance, do what we did. Go Astaro. You can go to astaro.com, A-S-T-A-R-O.com, or call 877 877- the number four Astaro, if you're in the U.S., 877, the number four Astaro, to schedule a, a free trial of the Gateway uh, in your business. But they are an international company. I think, I, I can't remember where they're based. I think, is it Germany? They're all Astaro? over. Astaro? I thought they were on the peninsula. Maybe they're on the They're all over. Yeah. So the point being, if you're not in the U.S., just go to oh, Astaro.com. Right, right, right. Right. Uh, or, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think they're, ex- anyway, they, they may be one of those distributed companies. And they have the Astaro Command Center, which we, I don't know if we've implemented. We should implement it. No, wait a minute. That wouldn't make sense for us because it's if you have multiple locations for your business because it gives you a wow. world map where you can see all the gateways and how they're handling. It's just wow. really, it's really sweet, sweet. And it, by the way, open source and commercial software, they've, they've combined it all together. I should encourage you, if you have a, a PC, there is a non-commercial uh, free version. You can download an appliance from VMware or, uh, or go to astaro.com slash security now. 
The free home user license has all the features of these stars, just limited in the number of users, I think. Uh, they even give you the um, the, the uh, Staro up-to-date bundle, which is fantastic. A-S-T-A-R-O.com to find out more. Or if you're in the U.S., call 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O, and get a, a trial in your business. This is great stuff. I say that with absolute authority because we are using it. And while we may have uh, hackers attack our twit.tv... <laughs> We're safe. We've been, you know, I mean, I'm sure we're under equivalent attack here. Uh, and I've never had a problem. That's not one stumble. It's been amazing. We have, I think, eight or nine VLANs in here. And, you know, it's Russell's great because each one has a different color-coded uh, uh, CAT 6 cable, cabling system. I mean, it's really, you should, cut. when you come out here, I'll take you downstairs in our basement. And I'll show you. It's beautiful. Who are you talking to? You. I love your basement. Oh, you've been there. You've seen the oh, IT. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, okay. Of course. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> and all the gateways <laughs> humming there. It's pretty cool. No, that, your basement's the best part of the whole thing. <laughs> I agree. I often will take, you know, it depends on who I'm talking to. Um, you know, we'll take them on the tour of the upstairs, which is gorgeous and quiet and cool and, you know, very, it doesn't feel like this is, and then I say, for the geeky ones, okay, now I'm going to show you the best part. <laughs> we go downstairs and there's everything humming and blinking and, you know, oh, it's amazing. We actually built an enclosure around everything with AC, so it's uh, dust and, uh, and, and climate controlled. Moving along, are you ready for questions? You betcha. I got them. Starting with an anonymous listener. He's wondering why higher levels of TLS break the lower ones. So when we've talked about this a little bit, uh, when we talked about SSL and TLS, he says, I tried adding TLS version 1.1 and 1.2 by enabling them on my system, as you described. I also left TLS version 1.0 and SSL version 3.0 enabled. As also, I think you, you, you recommend. But now I get connection errors with some sites. What happened? Yeah, so... Uh, that shouldn't happen. Right, right. <laughs> That's not supposed to happen. We've talked about SSL and its evolution, and it was deliberately, beautifully designed to handle exactly this situation where, where there would be an interest in migrating. The, it was just presumed in the beginning there would be an interest in migrating to future, more advanced protocols for whatever reason more features uh you know fixes to old things you know who knows what one way or another that's you know the the designer said we need to facilitate that so as we've discussed when the client is initiating a connection to a server it establishes a tcp connection first which we've just been talking about then the first thing it does is an SSL handshake. The first packet it sends is a list of all the protocols that it knows about and would be happy to use in order from most secure to least secure. And there have been attacks on SSL where, for example, a bad guy will intercept that and strip out all the more secure ones so that the client appears to only support very insecure ones. And in fact, when I say very insecure, that it goes all the way down to none. It goes all the way down to do not encrypt. 
So you can actually have a non-encrypted communication over technically an SSL connection, but no, now that's not normally allowed or, or accepted, but the spec does support that. So this list of of the things the client would be willing to use, knows how to use, goes off to the server. The server is supposed to choose the most aggressive one, you know, the best one, the most secure one that it, from that list, that it also knows how to use. And that's how this handshake is negotiated, how they end up arriving then at the at the highest level, the mo- the latest version of the protocol that they both understand. So that means... If all this was working right, you could turn on you we users of this podcast listening to this could could go to our browsers and operating systems and turn on 1.1 and 1.2 knowing that they're better than than SSL 3.0 and TLS 1.0 both that now have known problems and it ought to just work seamlessly servers which are up to speed on 1.1 and 1.2 ought to negotiate those improved protocols and those that aren't should be able to fall back to the ones they do know about the best that they can do get this leo when people started actually trying this they found out they couldn't connect at all Ooh, and that's what happened to our anonymous listener and many others it turns out that this had never been tested if you can believe it at the server side. And there are servers on the internet, popular ones, which when they see TLS 1.1 and 1.2 send a reset on the connection, they interpret it as an attack and they instantly drop the connection and the browser says, could not connect, sorry. It just, it's a hard, they don't even fall back and and renegotiate it's just it's just they essentially the the client is hung up on as quickly as the tcp protocol the underlying protocol allows with the with the server sending a an rst a reset packet which which instantaneously terminates the connection and so so for anyone else who's listening who has tried this that's what happened is there are buggy servers. The good news is, now that we realize we really do need to move to 1.1 away from 1.0 of TLS, there will be pressure on servers to get themselves patched and to work correctly. And so we can presume this is a, hopefully, a short-lived phenomenon. But that's what's going on right now. That's In- why we really oversight. can't. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Try it with a server first. <laughs> yeah. Oops. See if that works. Question two, Frank C. in Mississauga, Canada, wants to share news of, he says, quote, the best version of Firefox to date. Wow. Steve, I was listening to episode 323, and I couldn't agree with you more about versions 4, 5, and 6 of Firefox when it comes to memory leaks. I was also ready to give up on Firefox, but they came out with version 7 just in time, and I was happy again. Now, I know you don't like using the latest version of things, but do try version 7, really. The memory handling has been greatly improved, especially when multiple tabs are left open overnight, which was the issue uh, you had. Yep. I, I usually have 25 to 30 tabs open at all times. Hmm. Thanks for a great yeah. show. Yeah, so I've, I've heard people go both ways. I tried 7, and I still had trouble. 
I'm now, as we know, famously back on three. Ah. And, I, <laughs> and I'm happy. So four, five, and some, they broke something on at version four. Now eight has just happened. In fact, I got it and I played with it a little bit a couple days ago when it was two days away from release. It was at, in late stage beta at that point. So maybe it's already out. Um, but it takes a lot to move me off of somewhere I'm happy. As, you know, he says, using XP. <laughs> uh, so I'll be staying with three for a while. I'm, it does everything I need. All my add-ons work just fine, and I've got no memory problems at all. So although I will say that, that the, the gizmo I talked about last week, and I'm trying to look at it to bring the name back out, uh, Memory Fox mm. does work. That little Memory Fox add-on, it what it does is it pushes your in-memory allocation down, does not reduce the total size of the app. So virtual memory consumption remains the same, but it does free up working memory. So that can be a benefit and, and help speed up your computer. So the Memory Fox add-on is useful um, under all versions of Firefox. And so I that I could say... I, that I like. I am now, I have version 8 on my system. I am going to open 25 tabs, leave it open. We'll see what happens. Okay. Of course, I'm on a Mac. Does that change anything? Is it, uh, is it the same issue? Matter, the problem is over on the Mac. I think actually we have oh. a Q&A later on right. about the Mac. Okay. Yep. Stay tuned, boys and girls. Moving along to question number three. A surprised IT admin wonders how iPads <laughs> keep their cool. Stephen Leo, I've been a listener of Security Now since episode one. I believe, and believe it or not, I used to watch tech TV in the day. Wow, you're a gray hair. Anyways, I, <laughs> I still meet lots of people who watch tech TV, I'm happy to say. Mm. In fact, now what the latest thing is I meet people who say, when I was a kid, my dad and I, or <laughs> I grew up watching. You know, that's what I meet now. And these are adults in their 20s. I often say, you must have been a little kid when you were, yes, I was a child. Anyway, I've heard you and Steve, uh, you, Leo, and Steve go on and on about iPad this and iPad that. One thing you both failed to talk about, at least that I can recall, is how well it handles heat. I work in IT at a public school district, and we've recently started allowing iPads to connect to our network. When we ordered them for compatibility testing with our network, I figured it would be nothing more than a paperweight because I love my Droid and my Windows tablet. Boy, was I wrong. I found that not only can I do just about everything my Windows tablet and Android can do, it can run much longer. And temperature-wise, it runs much cooler. I've never felt my iPad get hot, actually. My question and for that, you is... That, that, wait, you mean your Droid or your iPad? My iPad. My Droid gets really yeah. hot. So my question uh -huh. for you guys is, how did Apple manage to keep the thing running so cool and efficient? Yeah, every, uh, every um, smartphone I've had... Uh, on the Android side, it gets pretty hot. But yes. uh, neither the uh, iPhone... Uh, actually, my iPhone can get pretty hot, but I've never had the iPad get hot. But remember, the iPad has a large cooling surface on the back there. Well, it does. What Apple did... They, Apple had the advantage of starting relatively late. You know, smartphones existed, Blackberries and, and Palms and, and all these other things. So they were able to say, okay... What do we care about? We know we need long battery life. And, you know, they had at that time Steve Jobs, the overlord, making sure that, you know, that it would meet his very exacting standards. So it turns out that processors 
that are stopped don't use any energy. It's only switching that uses energy. The way our technology works is that you're essentially you're dumping electrons into or pulling them out of of um, metal, essentially metal conductive areas inside the chip. But unless you're in the process of moving the electrons, there's no current flowing. And if there's no current flowing, there's no heat being generated. So what Apple did from the beginning was they arranged for the iPad in much the same way that the Kindle gets its multi-weeks of life, these really long-life devices are stopped when they're not actually doing something. The way yeah, Intel calls it speed step. Um, well, speed step has been around for a while. This is actually stopped. Not just step. slowed down, just, I, not, just I mean, zero. Yeah, yeah, it stops. The way, the, the way these devices can play video is that they have they offload the entire job now to a, a, a video coprocessor to a, or 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 at least to a video portion of their chip if it's integrated and because you you know you've got to have processing power in order to decode uh, H.264 and and MPEG and so forth so so there's going to be some 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 work done but that's I mean in overall that's relatively less work than what the processor is doing. And so so the processor in in either stopping completely, and it's very possible for these state-of-the-art, like the ARM-based processors, they can just stop. They they have a, a, like a wake-up timer that will tickle them and bring them back to life out of stop to uh, every every so often to see if anything has happened that needs their attention. So so what you'll find is if you if you were to do something with your iPad that really forced the processor to stay running all the time, you kept your fingers on the screen, you were moving things around, maybe like you know heavy duty gameplay where where you're really asking it to do a lot, you'll find that really will pull the battery down a lot faster. But if you do things like you know reading or or scrolling a page and then letting go and then it just sort of sits there. Um, battery life is a lot longer because the processor is actually stopped when you're not when it when it knows it doesn't have to do something, and that's not something you can just add. That's the problem. And I, when I said that Apple had the advantage of coming along later, Windows has this dilemma, and that is that its architecture, its fundamental architecture, makes assumptions all throughout it that that the processor is running all the time, and Microsoft can can try to play games, but this is this is why from the very beginning Windows CE had critical battery life problems because it's got the word Windows in its name, and it they this is was you know this is an old operating system that was designed pre battery life, I mean you know pre pre portable device and. All of those assumptions are are built in. You just can't throw them away. So um, that's an advantage that iOS has. 
Yeah, and you know, and going back to that flash story we were talking about, I I was told, and I don't know much about this, but I was told that by knowing what applications you're going to run, you can also design the processor more efficiently. And so the A4 and A5, uh, because they knew they didn't have to support flash, could be in fact fabbed differently. Does that make sense? Um, maybe not flash, but yeah, it but seems like that's cer- going to be kind of a generic thing. Yeah, right? but but certainly you you could absolutely profile. The processor, so that so that it so, so the things it does well are the things it is doing a lot, and that's really what you want. You want it to be as efficient as possible because if it has many more cycles to get the same work done, those are many more cycles of power being consumed and longer before it's able to shut itself down. Right. So if if you if you know what the target what what the target applications are and the things they need to do you can design the hardware to do those well and not waste space on your chip which is expensive and can consume heat not waste space space on your chip with things that are not going to be used very much so yes tuning really does make sense and they uh, this is something apple's taking very seriously they of course are using an arm design as a foundation but they bought pa risk uh, or PA Semi, rather, uh, which was a, a chip. They got their design talent. They got their design talent. And I was told, and I find this hard to believe, but that there are 1,000 people working on chip design at Apple. 1,000 people. Uh, wow. That tells you how seriously uh, they take this. Uh, very interesting. Anyway, moving on to Michael Landers in sunny California. He wonders whether Ars Technica is copying us. He points to an article uh, on Ars from October when passwords attack, the problem with aggressive password policies that acts, acts exactly echoes your comments on password change policies from a couple of weeks ago. It's a good article, since it echoes you. However, this isn't the first time I've seen an article from Mars that closely echoes your podcast shortly after your podcast. Perhaps one of their writers is using your show for inspiration. I don't well, think so. I you, love ours. I was going to say, Leo, I, you know what they say Great about... Minds. Well, there's that, and also that... Um, about flattery yes. is that imitation is, is the sincerest form. And I don't know whether anyone's getting ideas from the podcast. I hope so, because I get great ideas from them. Um, ours is one of my main sources. In fact, I, I, they're one of the, 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 the few um, Twitter feeds that I follow over on my account where I follow things, and I'm always glancing up to see what's going on. So... You know, I hope they're getting some value from me because I'm sure getting a lot from them. I think that uh, a lot of the same ideas in the security field go around. I don't know if yes. you can say that. I, w- I would never accuse uh, them. That's Steve. No. Steve uh, Sean Gallagher wrote that uh, article. But I would never accuse that Sean or anybody else uh, of, of, of stealing from us. I, and, and I'm with you. I think ours is increasingly my go-to place for long-form uh, intelligent articles on content. Yes. I actually uh, paid for a premier uh, subscription, which you don't need to do. Um, but I just wanted to support them because I really feel like they're uh, doing hey, the kind of journalism, uh, tech journalism I, I believe in. Speaking of which, what um, about paying for things? What's happening with Wikipedia? They need money again already? Every year they do a... <laughs> already. <laughs> you know, every year they do I a... I gave them a bunch of money not long ago. Every year. Way. It seems like a long... I think it was a year ago they did the last time where Jimmy <laughs> Wales would show up on your front page saying, give me money. Oh, he's back. He's back. Well, he's back. Yeah. I'll tell you, um, 
I don't mind. First of all, I think Wikipedia is one of the great resources uh, yep. of the Internet, if not the greatest single resource, and I use it almost every day. And yep. I, I remember talking to Jimmy, and, you know, the board and others continually tell him and uh, other people, look, we could make a million dollars a day if we just put ads on this page. We have that much traffic. And to his credit, Jimmy has consistently said there will be no ads on Wikipedia. Boy, and think about that. Context-based ads. for I mean, that it's a natural. Yeah, yeah. It really is. It well, is. We'll, ha we'll have them sooner or later. It's, yeah. it's inevitable. Yeah. Well, no, I don't think so. And I think that... I don't know, Leo. There's a lot of... They're, they're turning their back on a lot of money, but it costs money to run Wikipedia. But that's why whenever he asks, or whenever they ask... I shouldn't say he, because it's not just Jimmy anymore, but whenever... Uh, Wikipedia asks, I always give them money because uh, I believe that I get the value out of it. I think they're well yeah. worth it. Yeah. Anyway, I don't, I, I you know, I'm on little, Wikipedia I, I, right now. I don't see any uh, any begging going on, so I don't know. Hey, your public radio station does this, right? Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> yes. It's just like that. Moving along. Uh, question number five from listener JoJo. Hey, Jojo, in uh, the European Union. We were talking about the dual internets. He thinks it's a good idea. You've often mentioned how the original designers of the internet were only focused on getting the mechanics of packet routing to work and paid no attention to security. So it's no wonder that pretty much everything we use today is a failure from security perspectives, Ethernet, TCP, BGP, DNS, SMTP, FTP, and so on. Maybe the Apple approach of not lugging excessive baggage into the future should have been applied to the internet and most of its crappy protocols 10 years ago. Are DNSSEC and IPv6 the only signs of improvement for Internet One? So, you know, I read this and I thought, it's not so bad. Yeah, they're not that crappy. Um, I think that, that maybe when, you know, because this show is about focusing on right, problems. Right, right, right. You know, that, that's what we focus on. But let's remember that everyone has a front door whose lock can be easily picked. I mean, security doesn't have to be perfect in order to provide value. And, and we're all getting an amazing amount of value yeah. from the Internet globally. And yes... It could be better. Yes, there are bad guys lurking around who are taking advantage of these things. And yes, it is true that that the designers of the net did not understand what was going to happen. And were we to start from scratch today, maybe we could make it better. But I'm not even sure that we really can. Because when we were brainstorming a little bit last week about Internet 2... When that article came up, you know, both Microsoft and the FBI were saying, yeah, well, we need to, like, authenticate every packet that we put on. It's like, okay, so stop. <laughs> what, what, what are the implications of that? Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if that had – it could have never happened if that were the way it was designed. It did happen because it was just this big, spongy, happy, friendly, packet-passing blob – it all kind of worked. So, you know, I, I, I'm glad we have it. And and I would, I, I would suggest that there are security problems everywhere, which is why I had thought of the front door. We also have glass windows that can be broken. We've got, you know, people leaving car doors uh, 
you know, like like things uh, in in view inside a car that causes their windows to be smashed. And and I mean, and and back when alarm systems used to use phone lines, the phone lines would get cut, and then the alarm would ring, and the police would not come because right. the monitoring service had been disconnected. I mean, you know, that wasn't that that, that it, it, I mean, I guess my point is that. We know that security is hard. Bad guys will always work to and can defeat security. Um, I don't see how we could ever move past the Internet foundation we have. We can improve things incrementally. Um, And this show focuses on those areas which need improvement, I would say. But, boy, you know, I'm not unplugging. It's fantastic. And it works. <laughs> and it works. Yeah. yeah. Uh, good. I like that. Uh, Wogsy, who apparently is in flyover cornfield, I'm thinking Nebraska, comments about Internet bandwidth. I'm a little perturbed about this notion of selling tiered broadband or DSL service based on the philosophy that a faster data rate costs more because it uses more bandwidth and encourages more use, therefore causes more congestion. I think it's a, a rather mischievous, if not fraudulent, interpretation of electronic throughput. Wouldn't the tubes be less congested if all packets were delivered more quickly, clearing buffers and giving routers and servers more free time to make fewer errors? I should think more clear open bandwidth would be available for all if all routers, switches, and servers ran at maximum speed at a flat rate rather than deliberately holding, limiting, buffering, or rerouting lower tier data you know that's a really interesting point what do you think well all routers switches servers and so forth do run ah. at a maximum flat rate uh it's really not since modems that the there was a variation in the rate at which the bits moved and it was as we've talked about in our in our switching from wired point-to-point connections with modems, it's when we switch to packet-based communications that this changed. So the way bandwidth is, is apportioned is it's very much the way the cell services do, where as, as, we, as we have cell phones with larger bandwidth connections... They're not, they're not actually changing the frequency of the carrier that allows the bits to pass between the phone and the, and the, 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 the local cell any quicker. What they're doing is they're, they're bundling up channels and using a greater percentage of the available bandwidth for example, in the case of a cell phone, which is where you go from one to two to three to four G, it's 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 channel bundling essentially. The 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 similar analogy, for example, with with broadband, is that you are your data bits are not flowing in any faster when you have a higher broadband connection. It's that they're flowing more often. It's so everything is packetized. Somebody who has a one megabit broadband connection can be in the house next to you, and you've got 
50 megabits. Well, the bits are coming in. They're moving over the wire just as fast. He's just getting more of them. He who has the 50 megabit connection is getting a greater percentage of those bits. So, so all of the switching and all of the operation that we've got on the Internet, it's all running as fast as it can. You know, when you've got a 100 megabit Ethernet connection, even if you're, you know, typing slowly, what you're sending is little tiny packets very quickly across that fast connection. And if you transfer a huge file, you're sending a lot of large packets across that same connection. But the actual speed is always the same, as always as fast as it can go. So it is, it's just the case that, that providers, see, their logic is, well, this user is using a greater percentage of our capacity, so we want to charge them more. And if that's the model they want to use, I, I could see that it makes some sense. I actually prefer I, – I think the solution of charging by data rate is far preferable to the other solution they're using, which is capping after a certain number of gigabytes are downloaded each month. Yes. That's that the more draconian. You, I, that just gives me a queasy feeling. It's yeah. like, well, wait a minute. You know, how much do I have left? Am I going right. to run out? And I'm I willing to like pay that. for faster service. Yes. God knows we do. Uh, and symmetric service and that kind of thing. And I, th I don't think that that's unreasonable to ask, although I've had the debate and uh, with many times John C. Dvorak, I think essentially once you pay for the infrastructure, the bits are pretty free. They're pretty cheap from the point of view of the ISP. Whether they're being used or not, right. the infrastructure still has to be there. Right. But the infrastructure yes. is a one-time capital cost that's amortized pretty quickly. It's almost like the Golden Gate Bridge. Um you build the bridge, and you got to maintain it. But the building of the bridge is the expense. Uh, then they put up a toll structure <laughs> to, to charge by car, right? And the truth is the bridge costs no more if it's full of cars or it's got one car. Yep. So um, I, I, just, I just think that there's a – well, I mean, you know, it's a business. ISPs are going to get as much as they can out of you. Oh, um, believe me, they're making money, Leo. <laughs> and I don't think they're going poor. No. No. Uh, question seven, John in Lincoln, Nebraska, another cornfield flyover, worries about giving Google too many eggs. Whoa. Steve and Leo, I, I love the podcast. I'm a longtime listener, last pass at vitamin D advocate. <laughs> I have the entire family well-educated and believing now. Yay. Over the weekend, I saw that now uh, last pass, as we mentioned in the uh, news, uh, supports Google Authenticator. This is great news because I currently use the app on my Android phone to get into my Gmail account. I also know how much more secure two-factor authentication is, thanks to previous Security Now episodes. But it wonders, uh, makes me wonder if tying so many of my services to Google is a good idea or a potential security problem. What happens if Google were to go down for a few hours? Any thoughts or opinions on this would be appreciated. Am I putting too many eggs in Google's basket? Okay, By the so way, I should point out that, uh, and I guess you have also, but LastPass has always had two-factor authentication, which I use... But the way they did it is they had a security program that you'd put on a USB key that you would run. And so this right. was the second factor was kind of like a, a YubiKey coming from a USB key, which I carry in my pocket. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and so, of course, now using I don't have Google to carry Authenticator. It. Right. Right. Eggs, precisely. And so, so this was our – always our goal was to have a single solution of some sort. Um, we do know that any any – reliance on the cloud comes with benefits and costs 
And the costs are availability and well, and security. You know, is the stuff we, we're, we're going to put up there secure so that nobody else can get it? We've talked about that endlessly recently with all these free uploading services and how they work. And then is it going to be there when we need it? Right. So the good news with the authenticator, Google's authenticator, is that it is not dependent upon them. There, there are two approaches for this kind of device. There's the sequential one-time password and the time-based one-time password. The, um, the YubiKey is famously a sequential-based authenticator. And um, my little PayPal football is time-based. It, um, you know, it, every time I turn it on, every 30 seconds, it changes. Now, the model that VeriSign has adopted is, we're, is the we want to make money model. And so anybody using VeriSign devices, that is who's not, not the end user, but for example, uh, you know, this PayPal football is a VeriSign dongle. Um, and I've got also the VeriSign app on my BlackBerry. I love them, but I've had some conversations with people who were considering adopting the VeriSign solution, and they're really expensive. I mean, per authentication, PayPal is paying VeriSign some serious coin every time I use my little football to authenticate. Google's model is different. Google has open sourced this, and instead of the what what's called HOTP, which is the HMAC one-time password, which is the technology for using for, for doing it incrementally, and that's that that's in RFC four two two six that was laid out. Instead, what I'm seeing more becoming more popular is a time-based password, and that's what Google wants to use, wants its, expects its users to use. And the idea is that our phone knows what time it is, our computers know what time it is, and the, the authentication is inherently decentralized. If you're going to have a counter-based one-time password, some one entity, for example, VeriSign, needs to maintain their copy of the count. And so, by definition, all authentication has to go through VeriSign. And if VeriSign were off the net, nobody could authenticate, and that would be bad. Similarly, John was wondering if he was assuming that Google was in the loop. And, and the point is Google is not in the loop. Nobody is in the loop. There's no loop at all. The, the Google Authenticator generates a six-digit code based on time, and anybody who has the algorithm and your authenticator's private key can generate for themselves the same thing Google Authenticator shows. That has so, to be. Otherwise, LastPass wouldn't be able to use it. Well, they wouldn't be able to use it for free. And, see, and, and they wouldn't want to be paying VeriSign. They could support VeriSign's tokens, but they're not. Because, oh boy, I mean, VeriSign's making money on that. And, 
And Google is saying, okay, this is not where we want to make money. We're just going to, we're, we're going to enforce this. We're going to keep this open source. Here's all the source. It's going to be RFC based right now. This time-based OTP, T-O-T-P is an IETF draft. And so it's being ratified and actually VeriSign is participating in that process. So, you know, they're, they're part of wanting to be involved in making this, this approach work. And the beauty is that all you, that all an individual needs, there is also Google makes the authentication side, a, 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 a PAM module that does the authentication, a, a plug-in authentication module. Um, so, Anyone you wanted to authenticate to who supported the the um, the Google authentication solution only needs to know your device's secret and then and that's part of setting up an account with them and then they're able to make sure from then on that you actually have that device in your possession a a Google authentication um, device with the matching key. So it's a neat solution. Is, I, is, I really think it's going to happen. Is the secret tied to like the IMEI or something hardware-based on the phone, or is it generated when you first run the app? Generated when you first run the okay. app. Okay. So it doesn't, it doesn't in any way identify that piece of hardware. Nope. Except in the sense that a cookie would. You know, it's created. Correct. What, yeah. you, you, you need to share that with people who you want to be Got able it. to authenticate you. Right, right. Um, and in theory, you could only share it with one person and everybody else could use them. But the, the, the decentralized model of this is, I think, really what makes it go. And again, it doesn't have to be absolutely perfect to be much better than not having it at all. Right. So, again, we don't want the you know, perfect to be the enemy of, of the really good, good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Fadeli Adeulu in Nigeria, and I'm sure I'm butchering his name. Has been th- good name. <laughs> I love it, isn't it? Uh, has been thinking about the diameter of the Internet. Steve, I work as an IT professional in Nigeria. You should know that many are benefiting from security now. Even in my part of the world, I was initiated into the security now world in 2006. Since then, it's been a dick. Excuse me, I had to sneeze there. Addictive. I've also initiated uh, many others who use the podcast as a learning tool. That is so great. So yeah. nice to know. Uh, my question is on the idea of Internet diameter discussed in one of the uh, episodes you did on how the Internet works. You mentioned if we ever get more than 255 routers between two points on the Internet, no data would be able to get from one end to the other. Right. Because of what? It's an 8-bit uh, descriptor? Because the TTL is only a byte. And, it, when it, and so there's no way, even if you set it up to 255, when it decrements to zero, Boom. routers drop the packet. Interesting. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. I wasn't paying attention when you mentioned that. This very much caught my interest. I've been thinking about it. You didn't sound like there's any possibility of, of ever reaching this 255 router limit. You didn't sound worried. But I would like to know the extent of the limitation and if there's a way out. So I'd like to ask, if this diameter is limited by the one-byte header of TCP uh, version 4 that's used for setting the TTL, as you just described, how flexible is it to enhance the uh, implementation to increase the diameter? What will the Internet diameter, for instance, be with IPv6? Steve, this Internet thing could be a mystery, but for you guys uh, uh, who are committed to demystifying many topics, your good job is really making significant impact on the Internet community. Keep it up. Bye for now, Ade. That is nice. Thank you, Ade. So... Um, 
with every opportunity yes. <laughs> to increase the size of the field, which is now called the hop limit. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, TTL kind of, it, it was never about time, but but it sort of sounded like it was time about time. to live kind of gives away that, that it sort of does give you that impression, <laughs> yeah, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, now it's called the hop limit in the IPv6 spec, and it's eight bits. It doesn't change. Doesn't change. So they, um, like you, are sanguine about yes. this issue. Um, you know, when I trace from where I am to my to GRC servers, and for reasons of architecture, it goes up to Northern California and then comes back down. Yeah. It's like ten hops. I mean, people have seen trace routes. You know, you've done trace routes to places, and it's like seven, and it's tw- it's twelve, maybe. I mean, but it doesn't scroll off the screen and keep going off. You know, two hundred and fifty-five. We're we're just no. We we are so far away from that being a problem that where they took the IP, <laughs> the IP size from thirty-two bits and went to a hundred and twenty-eight. You know, this would be the time to yeah. increase the, the hop limit if you were if you had any concern that 255 would ever be a problem. And clearly, nobody's worried about that. I hope they weren't short-sighted. I hope that, that they I mean, that would be a problem. <laughs> I mean, we just went. We're going through this thing. This we got so many IPs <laughs> now we can't get to them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> now I'm worried. Peter H. Uh, in Wiltshire, as in Sheer, not Shire, Wiltshire, England, says, What about LastPass, Stephen Leo? Great show. Thanks. Love it. I know you both previously have said good things about LastPass, but with all the talk about password haystacks, Latin squares, and the pros and cons of frequently changing passwords, I've gained the impression that neither of you actually uses LastPass. No, I do. I do. Uh, That's all I use. Why? They've solved the problem so elegantly and the job is done. I'm aware of the network traffic anomalies that LastPass detected. I understand the implications of possible consequences and limitations of any impacts. And as such, I'm still happy with them. Are there other concerns that I've missed or do you simply prefer alternative apps, plugins, services, etc.? I'd really appreciate some feedback, even if you don't select the question for the podcast, because I think LastPass is great and it persuaded family members to adopt it. So I don't want to give those near and dear to me bad advice if there's something I've missed. Thank you. Nothing you've missed. Actually, you did miss something. Why Steve did this? I did it because I could. (laughs) I did it because it was there. Um, Seriously, Peter, I run my life on LastPass. So, and Leo does. I mean, I, I, it is so good and it is, it is still, it's what I use. But I just had an itch and I had the question, could a paper-based crypto be created and off the grid happened using Latin squares. So it's not at all that, that I think LastPass doesn't solve the problem. Actually, I've talked about the two together. I would use off the grid to generate the password, which LastPass would then use automatically for me. The advantage being that I always have the ability to go back to paper if I ever need to. I can have this thing in my wallet if I ever am without LastPass for, for some reason. I mean, so it's not that they're really competing technologies. But in the case of, you know, password haystacks, that was like, okay, like, wait a minute. Let's think about what 
you know, do passwords that are secure also have to be really hard? No. That was kind of a cool thing to realize. And so, and for Latin squares, it's like, hey, um, it's possible to do real good crypto with a piece of paper. So uh, they, they were just sort of cool technology things. But in terms of what I use, I use LastPass. It's just, that, it's just that simple. Yep. Yeah, and I do too. And I use the password generation. It's just that, you know, if the, I guess the Haystacks is one thing uh, and a good point. You know, you could use, in fact, I do, uh, the LastPass generated password and just add a standard Haystack, you know, a few characters to it to make it just that much more strong. Yeah. So I do that. I have a certain set of characters that I use. It's I will never tell. Oh. <laughs> uh, and the whole idea of perfect paper passwords is if you're offline or the or the Latin squares is if you're offline. Yeah. And LastPass, of course, requires you to be online uh, to use it. Uh, Mario Aker or Arker, Arky, RC in uh, New York wonders about sending Steve Twitter messages. I hear on your Security Now podcast, you say people send you tweets about security-related events. Well, once a while ago, I tried to make you aware of something, but I could not send you a message via Twitter. Did I do something wrong? Or you need to follow someone to be able to receive Twitter direct messages from that person. You do need to follow people to get DM'd. But I don't yes. think you are saying DM me. No, um, and I don't follow anyone on my SGGRC account um, because I, I can't. I mean, if I were to follow everybody who they follows all DM me, me all the time, well, or I'd be seeing there. I'd be seeing twenty six thousand individual Twitter feeds, yeah. and n nothing would happen. I mean, I just, I just not, not even get out of bed in the morning. So, so Mario, to answer your question, to, to the way people get things to me is they mention me in their own tweets. They just put an at sign sggrc, and then say whatever they want to say. They're actually tweeting that to everyone who follows them. But my, my feed picks that up as a mention of my Twitter account, SGGRC, and so I see it. And so uh, there's a whole bunch of people who from time to time run across something they want to make sure I knew. And so they tweet themselves whatever they want to say and just mention by doing an at sign SGGRC, and I will see that also. So that's how, that's how you do it. Yeah. Same thing for me. Great. I, I read my uh, anything you at to me. I read that usually. Yeah. Not religiously. Hey, we got a bonus. Question 11 from Paul Bone in Melbourne, Australia. It's the Happy Camper of the Week story. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Spelled OMG, OMG, OMG. K2PDFOPT or <laughs> K2PDF. Thanks for sharing this on Security Now 324. I'm visually impaired, having about 12.5% of normal vision, born cataract blind, and after having my cataracts removed, I developed glaucoma. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Mm. And have since developed other vision problems. I bought a Kindle DX with the hope that it would help me read scientific paper more easily. Of course, that's the big format, Kindle. I'm working on my Ph.D. in computer science. Sadly, I found that zooming into PDFs was too clumsy. Although I love the e-ink screen and reading novels on it, thanks for your recommendations, and I use Audible, I'd pretty much given up trying to read PDFs on my Kindle and have since been waiting for a tablet PC that does this well, maybe the Kindle Fire. But now I've heard about and used K2PDFopt. I'm so extremely happy. I found the website, saw an example where they'd converted a PDF into large print format. I was so happy that I might be able to read my PDFs comfortably. Uh, 
And believe me, there are a lot to read for this PhD that I cried a little inside. Anyway, I know you've simply passed on a message rather than created the product, but I wouldn't have found out about it if you didn't mention it on Security Now. So thanks to you and to the listener who wrote in about it. K2 PDF Opt. And remind me again, that's a PDF converter. Is that what it is? Yeah, um, it uh, it is a processor of PDF files that basically it strips out a lot of the formatting and does make PDFs readable on much smaller screens. Um, you lose that, you know, the, the PDF itself is a page-based layout. And so if you're going to show a PDF page on a small screen, you're sort of stuck. I mean, you know, because it's got to fit the whole page on one screen. It's a screen at a time sort of deal. And so this just sort of says, no, we're just going to grab the text and preserve what we can. But legibility and readability on small screens is our goal. And they've really achieved it. Well, there you go. And it's from willus.com, yes. dot com. Steve, we have completed your assignment. 11 questions, <laughs> good and true. And you've answered each and every one with your usual grace, verve, and savoir-faire. Okay. <laughs> and I'm exhausted. <laughs> At SGGRC, that's the Twitter account. At SGGRC, GRC being the Gibson Research Corporation, GRC.com being the website, certainly the place to go if you, as most people who use hard drives, are looking for the best hard drive maintenance utility of all time. Spin right, go there, Yay. buy it. Yay. Uh, you also will find, as a bonus, many freebies, lots of great stuff. Uh, just browse around GRC.com. And, of course, if you've got a question for next, you know, two episodes from now, there's a form there, security, uh, the, the uh, GRC.com slash feedback uh, is a great place. And the podcast there. Uh, now, audio only, he does a six, Steve does a very, for us, he does his own 16 kilobit version for people who have bandwidth issues. So we've got a 64 and a 16 kilobit version there. Uh, also, transcripts, which Steve does. Thank you, Steve. Um, we also have video available at twit.tv along with all the other versions. GRC.com or twit.tv. We do this show every Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific. That's 2 p.m. Eastern or 18. Now, I guess UTC hasn't changed, but because our time s fell back, it would, right. be, it would be... We changed. We changed. So we're now minus 8. Right. You figure it out. I suppose just 7. <laughs> I think that means 1900 UTC, but I could be wrong. Yes, Sparky says 1900 UTC. So I will now add 8 to the Pacific time. 1900 UTC at twit.tv. And Sparky knows of what he speaks. Apparently he does. He, he's a good contributor over in the news. Oh, groups. good. Thank you, Sparky. Paul Byford. Um, next week, I'm with you, Leo, in the studio. There's a, there's a cool internet identity conference on Tuesday, the day before which I am going to be uh, up in Northern California to attend. And I figured since I was, I'd see my uh, family and uh, spend the night and then be in the studio with you. And that will be the topic. Will be what happened, what I learned, what I saw, what's going on in Internet identity. We'll be talking about that next week. I think that's a really interesting subject. Oh, it it's, the, it's the challenge, as yeah. we all know, authentication. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful, Steve. I'm glad that we're going to see you. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll order the, uh, the Burgundy right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, we thank you all for joining us. We will see you next week in studio for Security Now. Bye-bye. Security Now.